This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jack Ford. In New York, a federal court civil trial jury yesterday found former President Donald Trump liable on charges of sexual assault and defamation filed against him by the writer Eugene Carroll. The jury chose not to find him responsible for a rape allegation, instead deciding that he had engaged in illegal sexual contact. After deliberating less than three hours, the jury unanimously decided that Mr. Trump should pay a total of approximately $5 million in damages for the claims. Former president called the verdict, quote, a disgrace, and his lawyer vowed to appeal the decision. And in another stunning legal development today, U.S. Representative George Santos has been indicted in a federal case charging him with 13 criminal counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, theft of public funds, and making false statements to Congress. So what led to the Trump verdict? What's next in that legal saga that has spanned decades? And what is next for Representative Santos? Well, for some answers, we're delighted to have joining us Noted New York trial and appellate attorney and former prosecutor Matthew Galuzzo to help guide us through all this. Matthew, welcome to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's focus first, if we can, on the case against former President Trump, and then we'll talk about the case against Representative Santos. So uh, looking at, at the Trump case, I suspect that many people are going to be Surprised by the notion that a case that is this old, this goes back some three decades, that it actually could have been handled now. What is the answer to that? Why would a case that is so old be able to proceed today? All right. Well, the New York legislature was aware of a whole lot of cases of sexual assault claims and rape cases uh, that had uh, their statute of limitations had expired. And so they passed some legislation recently that gave potential plaintiffs a one-year window to essentially resurrect expired old cases and file them. Uh, so that anybody who had ever failed to uh, pursue a claim while it was still viable had a chance, a second chance to bring the claim. And this is the uh, statute that allowed Ms. Carroll to bring this case against Mr. Trump. Now, if somebody again is, is paying some attention to this, they're gonna hear language that sounds like it was a criminal case. When you're talking about allegations of rape, or sexual assault or sexual contact. Now, not defamation, clearly, but those other charges. Uh, explain why th this was not a criminal case and what the significant differences are. Sure, it wasn't a criminal case because most of the allegations would have been beyond the statute of limitations for a criminal case. But because of this uh, one-year window of uh, permitting uh, cases to be filed in civil court, cases that were otherwise expired, um, that's the big difference why a civil case here could proceed and a criminal case could not. Now, the big difference between, there's two big differences between a civil case and a criminal case, of course. Uh, in criminal court, we're talking about potential penalties like jail and criminal convictions. And in civil court, we're not. We're talking about money damages. And that's really the uh, relief that a plaintiff can get. And of course, the standard of proof is different in the two contexts as well. In a criminal court, you have to prove somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In civil court, no one's guilty. They are responsible. They are liable. And that is demonstrated by a preponderance of the evidence, which is more like 
51%, more likely than not, as opposed to the much higher criminal court standard. All right, some significant differences. Let's talk about now some elements of, of the trial. So two, there were two witnesses who were allowed to testify on behalf of the plaintiff, E. Jean Carroll, who talked about their own allegations of inappropriate contact and behavior by the former president. So the question is, if they are not part of this lawsuit, why then legally was their testimony allowed in the case? That's a very good question. And it's an issue that's very controversial in this uh, sphere among attorneys. Uh, you know, you're seeing it in some criminal cases nowadays, like Harvey Weinstein's case, for example, there were what we call at the state level Molyneux witnesses, which are people whose testimony is not relevant to a particular charge. You know, it's not the basis for a charge, but it sort of provides the modus operandus of the defendant shows this is something that he does. This is the way that he approaches people. You saw it in the Bill Cosby case out in Pennsylvania, for example. Uh, you're seeing it more and more uh, in a lot of different cases. But the reason why it was permissible in this case, uh, well, a couple of reasons, but one of which is that in federal court, in civil sex assault cases, there is a specific rule where this sort of testimony is permissible. A plaintiff can use witnesses uh, to say that they were also sexually assaulted by the defendant in a similar manner as part of her case, which is what happened here. Now, we know that there are dozens of women out there who have claimed that they've been sexually assaulted by Mr. Trump. In this particular case, it was one woman who claims to have been assaulted on an airplane and another woman who claimed she was assaulted when she was a journalist at Mar-a-Lago um, following Mr. Trump. And um, they were both were allowed to testify pursuant to this specific federal civil sex assault rule. Now, it's still controversial. You know, the judge still has to decide, is this evidence more probative, which is say relevant or insightful, than prejudicial, which is to say, you know, unfair to the defendant. You don't want to convict somebody based on their character or what we would describe as their propensity or their likelihood to do something based on what else they've done. It's supposed to be based on the evidence, but you know, the federal court rule yeah. is that um, a, a jury is allowed to consider these other things. So, and would, so would it, you, it, it, would it will get appealed. Yeah, yeah, I, that's my next question too. Would you yeah. anticipate then that this would be a significant issue on appeal raised on behalf of the former president? Well, it's the best argument he has. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, there's no question because there's really nothing else for him to appeal. It, this is the only argument he has on appeal. Uh, I think he'll probably lose. I mean, most right. of the time you do lose your appeals, but you yeah. know, there is a very specific rule that says that you can use these kinds of witnesses, and we're only talking two. We're not talking about twenty. Right. And so, I think that he's probably going to lose on appeal, but he'll try. It's worth right. a try. Let me ask you about some other elements of the trial here. Uh, the the uh, Mr. Trump chose not to attend. Now, again, civil trial, don't have to, right? Nope. It's very different from a criminal case. Chose not to attend. Um, the plaintiffs used portions of his deposition that they were then able to play in front of the jury. Talk about, the, the and this is a hard thing to project, I know, but psychologically, if you're a trial lawyer, if you're in, in a case such as this, how worried are you about the fact that jurors might say to themselves, you know, why isn't the defendant even here? Or why, if they're saying it never happened, why does a defendant not get on the stand, put their hand on the Bible and say, this never happened? How significant do you think that might have been in the minds of jurors? Well, you know, I, I tweeted on Twitter last week, if anybody cares to check, uh, to say that a verdict for the plaintiff in this case, you know, as the evidence was concluding, was the surest bet in the history of juries at that point. Because yeah. not coming in there and defending himself under those circumstances I mean, he had 0.0% chance of winning that trial. It was obvious 
It wasn't going to happen. Now, I think it may have been obvious to him before the trial even started that he wasn't going to win. And I have a feeling that what he really did is rather than go to court and be humiliated by sitting there or by testifying and making a fool out of himself or giving the cameras fodder uh, to, to, to use against him later, he decided just to treat the whole thing with such disdain. I'm not even going to show. This doesn't even mean anything to me. It's so false. I won't even dignify it with my presence. That was his approach. But I mean, at the same time, he's basically telling this jury, please find me libel. I mean, because what are they supposed to do under those circumstances? I mean, honestly, oh, we, you didn't prove it. She sat there and she testified and you couldn't even show your face. Yeah. So I, this was a fait accompli, as we might say in French. I mean, it was a done yeah. deal uh, yeah. before it really started. So. Last question for you here. And I want to pivot and talk about Representative Santos is, is, is we know that this is the civil, civil trial verdict has no impact on his ability to run for president of the United no. States. It's not even and people should realize, even if somebody's convicted of a crime, they can still run for president of the United States. True. Sure. So yeah. so last question for you, as this moves forward, w- would you think that there might be any movement between this verdict now, five million dollars and an a- appeal about possibly settling the case? Or do you think that it's too sort of emotional on both sides for that to happen? It's conceivable. You know, Donald Trump could delay things, the payment of this money with appeals. I suppose there is some outside chance he would prevail on this issue with the witnesses, though I think it's very remote. Uh, at the very least, he could, you know, force their lawyers to do a lot of work in defending the appeal. And so that you could see potentially a reduced settlement to prevent an appeal of happening of like four and a half, you know, right. maybe. Yeah. But I mean, you know, certain, as you said, certainty on both sides. Right. But and, are they, but Trump is not bargaining for a position of strength at all right. on this matter. So I, I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah. I, I I agree. I, it's possible, but I'd be surprised. Let, let's let's shift our focus now to the indictment of Representative George Santos. Uh, it things had been in the works reportedly over the last series of months. Um, people should realize this indictment. I described a wide-ranging federal indictment: thirteen counts, um, seven of wire fraud, three of money laundering, two of false statements to Congress, and one of theft of public funds. Interesting. Apparently, it has to do with him collecting unemployment insurance at a time period when he was not qualified for it. So very different from the other things we're talking about here, which are focusing more on the ideas of fraudulent solicitation. Uh, for political campaigns and using the money that he received allegedly inappropriately for pro- for personal use. So when when uh, let's break down some of that so people can can understand wire fraud. We hear it an awful lot, but it's kind of a confusing subject. Give us a definition, working definition of wire fraud. Well, first of all, wire fraud. This particular charge is eighteen USC thirteen forty three. If you want to look it up, but it is the bread and butter uh, charge that federal white collar prosecutors use more often than any other. It is the broadest, most all encompassing federal fraud charge there is. And basically it's, you know, the fraud aspect is, you know, taking someone's money under false pretenses, you know, basically lying to them to get their money. And the wire aspect is using a wire communication systems, which nowadays we know as, you know, the phones, internet, email, things like that. And basically it's almost impossible nowadays to commit a fraud without it actually being technically a wire fraud because that's how we communicate. So, um, yeah, that's that's what those charges relate to. And and as I mentioned, the allegations in the indictment talking about the fact that they'd set up an organization, they were they were soliciting money, and according to the allegations, money some of that money was was being used for personal expenses, which, according to the allegations, clearly against the law. You hear a money laundering charge, and we tend to think money laundering, drug cartels. Give us an right. idea of uh, understanding what does that mean? Right, uh, you do oftentimes 
here in that context, but uh, it can be in a white collar context as well or in a context of fraud. And generally speaking, you're trying to uh, hide the source of legally obtained money in some way. And frequently that involves making bank transactions, one bank to another. Uh, hopefully people don't keep tracking all these transactions uh, such that you can get to a point where you can spend the money uh, from that bank without uh, seeing where it first started, its route. And uh, I think that's what you see here in the indictment. I've only had a chance to look at it quickly, right. but um, I think we're talking about some fraudulently obtained donations um, through a what is really a false sort of political committee or political organization, then being rerouted through a number of bank uh, accounts until it gets to Mr. Santos's personal account so that he can spend it on whatever he wants to spend it on, clothes and other personal items. And so um, I think that's what the money laundering is, right. is talking about. And it's interesting, as you know, you can have a single event which could give rise to multiple types of charges. And I think we're, sure. we're seeing that here. I mentioned also uh, two counts of false statements to Congress, apparently about his financial statements. So wh where does this case go now? What are the next steps that, that will follow? I think as we speak right now, now, I believe he's in custody, uh, that he had to surrender himself this morning to the Eastern District of New York out Long Island to the federal courthouse, and that he'll be seeing a judge at some point uh, soon, if he hasn't already. There will be uh, a not guilty plea on the indictment, and then there will be some discussion as to the conditions of his release, if any. I assume he's going to have some kind of bail package to propose, and uh, we have to get some signers uh, to come in and, and vouch for him. And then uh, after that, I mean, the... Uh, it can go a lot of different ways, but uh, eventually he'll find a lawyer that he likes. He'll find uh, he'll have the chance to review the discovery, which is to say the evidence against him, the documents against him. And uh, maybe he'll make motions. Maybe he'll start plea negotiations. I don't know. Okay. Well, it, it will indeed be interesting. We, we know that um, we've seen political positions now being staked out. Many Democrats and even some Republicans have said from the beginning that if something like this happens, he should be out of Congress. Um, the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has said, well, let's let this play out before anything happens. So my last question to you is very quickly, legally being indicted, does that mean that you automatically get thrown out of Congress? No. Short answer. No. Okay. I mean, you know, listen, uh, you would think that in, there would be some shame left in this world and that if you were to get indicted for something that's terrible and so related to your job that you might fall on the sword or just gracefully bow out. But, you know, we don't do that sort of thing anymore, apparently. And so he's going to fight it to the end. Uh, but no, he's still allowed to hold on to his office until he uh, until he goes to jail, perhaps. I don't know. We'll see. Matthew Galuzzo. Matthew, thank you so much. A lot, a lot of complications going on here. A couple of different stories. Did a marvelous job explaining all of this. To us. We'll get you back and we'll we'll have you back and we'll talk some more as these proceed. But thank you for I'd your love time to. And, and for your thoughts. You take care now. All right, you too. Thank you. Okay. Hi, I'm Jenna Flanagan. Forty years ago, Brenda Berkman paved the way for women to join the FDNY, winning a federal discrimination lawsuit against the city of New York that made it possible for women to become New York City firefighters for the first time in history. After serving 25 years in the FDNY and retiring as captain, a career that included acting as a first responder during 9-11, Berkman decided to take a leap and follow her passion for activism and for art. Berkman is the vice president of programs at the nonprofit organization Monumental Women, which advocated for and secured the installation in 2020 of the first monument in all of Central Park to honor real women, Sojourner Truth, Susan B. Anthony, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Her own artwork is part of an exhibit at the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, Berkman, 
has also been an author, a teacher, a White House fellow, among many other things. And we should note a regular watcher of Metro Focus. And she joins me now to talk about her life, her career, and what is all ties all of those seemingly distinct pursuits <laughs> together. Brenda, welcome to Metro Focus. It's great to have you on. Hey, Jenna, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Love Metro Focus. <laughs> well, first of all, I never get enough of hearing that. But <laughs> what I also want to hear, though, is about, I mean, your groundbreaking career. Um, you know, the FDNY is such a storied institution in New York, and you're one of the people who broke a huge barrier as a woman to be able to serve as a firefighter. Just tell me a little bit about, take me back to that time and tell me about that experience. You know, people don't re remember at all that prior to 1977, women weren't even allowed to apply to become New York City firefighters. So that meant that it didn't matter if you had won Olympic gold medals in a, you know, in the pentathlon or whatever, or if or your, you know, your entire family had been on the fire department for its entire existence. You weren't allowed to even apply if you happened to have been born a woman. And that had to change in 1977 in response to federal sex discrimination laws. And uh, then, of course, when women were first allowed to apply, the city decided to change its test to make it what it was called the most difficult test ever given for any job in New York City. And a lot of people really had doubts about women's physical capabilities, even about our courage to, you know, do dangerous things. And there was a lot of opposition um, among men and women to women coming on the job. But I believe that the city was not actually testing for job-related physical abilities. And when all the women who took the physical portion of the exam failed it, and I failed it, and I was in much better shape than I am today. Uh, I brought this lawsuit, and to people's great surprise, I won. And that was really, though, the beginning of the struggle for women, a struggle that continues to go on today to be fully integrated into the New York City Fire Department. Still very small numbers of women. When I won my lawsuit, 40 of us came on together. Uh -huh. um, and then another woman wasn't hired for 10 years. Uh, and then after that, three, one of whom just retired recently. So it's been, a, you know, only now are we up to the over 100 women in the New York City Fire Department in a department that is 11,000 members. So, wow. yeah, so you can see it's been an uphill battle. But I really believe that women had a lot to contribute to the department, to the fire service, to our communities. We want to serve our communities the same way that men do. And it is a great job. Uh, it just was not the easiest thing for me when I came on because um, of a tremendous amount of resistance to women becoming firefighters. Well, you know... A lot of times, I mean, because I also want to talk about your work once you retired, um, but very quickly, just once you got in, how was it for you to be able to rise to captain um, in what, by a lot of accounts, not ubiquitously, I don't want to make judgments here, but by a lot of accounts, sounds a lot like a boys club. Oh, yeah. 
high school locker room, you know. Um, well, we do have civil service exams. And, you know, I studied. I got promoted to lieutenant. And then I studied some more. And I got promoted to captain. And I really liked being an officer. I liked having um, drilling, you know, and having control over the day so that we could go out and do the things that we were supposed to be doing. Um, I highly recommend to women that they study for promotion and, and uh, you know, take it when it comes along. So things did get better for the first group of women as we went along. But honestly, Jenna, I still got some harassment on the day that I retired from the fire department, which just seems goofy to me because, um, you know, why would people not want to make the job the kind of job where everyone feels like they're part of the team and and we're all pulling together because it is a, a, a dangerous job. It is a demanding job. And I, you know, I really thought that all of us, men and women, should be working as one, as one team. Well, then what I want to get ask after, I guess, is how did you take those experiences and use that to, I guess, perhaps inspire and build your uh, career in activism and in art? We so often hear about artists is that there's usually some sort of adversity that uh, drives them to create. And I'm wondering if that was the same for you. Well, I just start out by saying that I was an activist from the time I was a little girl because I really had interests that a lot of people believe little girls shouldn't have, like sports. We didn't have Title IX in those days um, and other kinds of things, leadership roles that girls could be secretaries, but they couldn't be president of you know, the student council, goofy things like that. And I, uh, when I came on the job as a, as a firefighter in New York, I formed an organization because I knew the women had to work together and, and help each other out and have each other's backs. Um, but I was trained as a historian. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in history uh, from college and graduate school. And I always had an interest in, in women and people of color. The, the groups, the marginalized groups, it's hard to think mm-hmm. of women as a marginalized group because we're the majority of the population, but it's true. And how they had been left out of the history books. And I thought, this is this is, you know, not right. Women clearly had a lot to contribute to our country over the years. And so I was always interested in women in history. And I think that learning about women in history, women like Sojourner Truth, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, those three women you mentioned that are now the first real women to be memorialized in Central Park in its 167-year history, uh, that was not an easy task to get them in the park. But they they did so much to make our lives as women and men so much better than they were previously. And they had to put up and break a lot of barriers to do that. And they inspired me. I thought if they could do these, these really difficult things, women weren't allowed to speak in public. Sojourner Truth had been born a slave, um, you know, Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wanted desperately to go to law school and she couldn't go to law school. All these things that they, you know, had to experience that were unfair and they they continued to struggle. 
not just for their own benefit, but for the benefit of all of us. And I thought if they could they could put up with that. I could certainly put up with what was going on and happening to me in the fire department. And so history has always been an inspiration for me. So when I retired, uh -huh. I got involved with this group called Monumental Women. And we don't we didn't just put the statue in in Central Park. That was a seven year project. We had to raise a million and a half dollars in private funds in order to do that. And wow. we unveiled it in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, but when you go there, you can hear Viola Davis speaking as Sojourner Truth and Meryl Streep speaking as as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Jane Alexander as Susan B. Anthony and Rita Moreno in Spanish and America <laughs> Ferrar and Zoe Saldana. So it is a great thing. But we also have a five borough women's rights history trail. So we're building on that so that you can go all around the five boroughs and learn about women who did important things in New York City and in the country and in the world, things that have not been memorialized in our public spaces. Whenever I hear about um, particularly people in the activist sector who are working on behalf of marginalized people, I always wonder, from your perspective, why? I mean, these are important stories. So from your perspective, why do you think that they were left out? Was it an oversight or do you think it was intentional? I still believe that, you know, women aren't regarded as equal to men, unfortunately, even these days um, that they're and people of color and immigrants and poor people, you know, people who don't have economic advantages that and, and maybe aren't as educated as they might like to be. So there's, I don't know, this hierarchy, this top dog thing that people still want to look down on other groups of people, which is inconceivable to me. I mean, we're all stuck on this little tiny planet, and it's important that, you know, that we help each other to, to live our lives together. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.